1: Join Brett Weekly as he interviews your favorite celebrities from film, television, comedy, and much more. Inconceivable! Plus, you never know who will stop by. Dude, we are so gonna party! Now, here's your host, Brett Allen. It's another episode of The Brett Allen Show, a pop culture podcast and video cast where we talk to your favorite actors and comedians from film, television, of course, comedy, music, and more. And today we have a very special guest. I am so excited about this that we've been working on this for a while. We are chatting with comedian and author now, Roastmaster, all the above uh former just pretty much you've done a lot jimmy carr we're going to talk about his book before and laughter a life changing book jimmy welcome to the show it's great to have you here today
0: well it's a it's an honor and a privilege for you to have me on the show i feel sure um i mean (laughs) if it's a show about favorite actors and comedians i'm not sure whether your audience will have me in their top 10 but maybe after this maybe i'll change a few minds win some hearts Yes. Very much like the U.S. military in Iraq. That's my campaign here. (laughs) Shock and awe. Shock and awe is what I'm I'm going for.
1: Yes. Well, I have to say that I've been a fan for a very long time, going all the way back to the game shows and all the things that you've done. But when I found out that you had written this book, being a father myself, I was very excited because when I talk to comedians and and comedians who have kids – it's just a different kind of vibe because, I mean, you do what you do, obviously, but you're also a parent. And then when you write a book, it's even better because it's very inspiring. This book essentially is great because it takes son a journey of your life a little bit and kind of gives us some insight to sort of how you got started, but also writing this book as a memoir, so to speak, for your son Um, And I I don't know if you say this kind of jokingly that before you're too old and he's too old to get it. But really, that's kind of the genesis of this book is sort of just passing on some wisdom and sort of uh, um, a life note, I guess you could say, about kind of what you've done. and, And it's just very it's a great book.
0: The problem with wisdom is it's earnest. And the people listening to this podcast, people that are fans of comedy and pop culture, don't really go for earnest. You know, there's a whole swathe of our society that goes, look, I'd love to read Eckhart Tolle, but he doesn't know any dick jokes. So I need (laughs) someone else to kind of I'm kind of taking the whole of life and filtering it through the charcoal of comedy so that it becomes in some way palatable. That's the pitch for the book. That's the idea. And it's fun. I mean, I think being a father has changed me in lots of ways, but also I'm still the same guy. I tell very edgy jokes. That's the kind of sense of humor that I have. I think your sense of humor is like your sexual preference or your taste in food. Some people like the rough stuff and they like it spicy and they like, you know, edgy comedy and some people like mild comedy and they like, uh, they like uh, bland beige food and they like the missionary position. Who are we to judge on any of these things? It's kind of, it's given to you. I like edgy comedy, but I also, you know, you can, I think be very sincere about life without being terribly serious about it. And it's nice to make that kind of distinction and, and write something that I think, I mean, it's had a lovely reaction so far. It's like in the UK, I have to explain to people on this podcast, I'm like a big deal in the UK, like uh, I can shift some books in the UK. So it's got a lovely reaction from people of like going, oh, well, like I got something out of it. And there was quite a lot of, it's like, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants as well. It's like, it's littered with my favourite quotes. And, and I kind of like that quotes, almost like jokes, like everything else gets burnt away other than the essential thing. So like one-liners, I'm sure that, you know, it starts as always a longer thing and then you kind of cut away everything that doesn't you don't need for that laugh.
1: Yeah, I kind of definitely get that uh, vibe from the book. So this was a project that you started mid post lockdown when you started writing this. This, this is was kind on, of
0: every every touring comedian got the call from the agent uh you know 4 weeks into the into lockdown sort of drumming their fingers on the table and saying, yeah, I noticed income's fallen off <laughs> either a podcast or a book. And I thought I, I was actually asked to write a piece for, there was a book that was um, we have a national health service here. I don't want to go on about it, but you know, we don't, we have free healthcare. So maybe, maybe <laughs> I, don't know, I guess maybe we're better than you and you should re-, re you should rethink that whole Boston tea party thing. That said, uh, they were doing a fundraiser for our free national health service. And uh, we were all asked to write a piece. It's my friend, Adam Kay, who wrote this wonderful book called This Is Gonna Hurt, about his experiences being a doctor. And then we all wrote pieces about the NHS. And I wrote a piece about my mother dying in, in hospital. And a publisher read it and thought, that's pretty good. It's nice. You could turn your hand to that. You could be a writer. I mean, the only reason I never wanted to be a writer is it's much harder than being a stand-up comedian. Because like stand-up is one of the great jobs, it's, and it's got, like, there's inherent wisdom in stand-up. Like, all stand-ups become kind of masters of failure. I've written more jokes that don't work than any of your listeners. You know, because, and you become very okay with failure. You become okay with, like, trying stuff and going, yeah, that didn't work. Oh, that didn't work. That didn't work. And then eventually you fail so many times you can't help but succeed. And obviously, you know, no one gets to see the working out. That's a, that's a great kind of lesson in life. And I thought, well, it's, it's interesting to use stand-up as... Uh, uh you know an analogy throughout the book for how you're like you know what do things what do comedians do better than regular people well they're better at listening um he said as he as he talked at his interviewer um better at listening better at watching and observing um brilliant at pattern recognition I mean really the the, the nature of all jokes is pattern recognition and, and playing with those patterns the expectation of those patterns but that's really all of human progress is pattern recognition so it's a extremely important skill um you know that that kind of linguistic ability as well the the, the quality of your communication being the quality of your relationships uh, you know with yourself and with the with the outside world as well so it's it's got it all in there also i should mention cuz i've said anything funny in a bit it's fucking funny it's a fucking funny it book it is
1: yeah it is quite hilarious and again being a parent being able to relate to so many different things that you talk about and of course your humor and i have to say that's one of the things that I like is that when you did become a father, you didn't change anything about yourself. You still tell are, are telling the same types of jokes and people know well, you. For I had that.
0: this, had this thing happen. I was about maybe it was on the day my, my, my son was born early. So, you know, it's all a bit traumatic when your son's born early and I had to go out, he's a bit premature. So I had to go out and buy, you know, those little, um, what are they called? Onesies, right? The onesies yes. for babies. So we had some of those, but they were for a full term baby which was they a little bit bigger. So on him, they would they dwarfed him, so he didn't fit him at all because he was tiny. So I had to go out and buy these teeny tiny baby grows and there's a place near the hospital that sells them. So I went out and I, I, you know, the first day being a father, I'll do something useful. I'll go and I'll buy the baby grows. So I'm buying the baby grows and I get like six of them in the premi, premie premie size. And I hand them to the lady behind the counter in the store. And she says, uh, she said, do you want the coat hangers? I said, it's a bit late for that. <laughs> I've not not changed. I've not changed. I've just had the most beautiful experience and I'm very happy to do abortion jokes. Great. Perfect.
1: I'm curious what the response was of the clerk when you made that statement. Did they get it? Did they know who you were or were they just mortified?
0: got it and laughed. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. I mean, thank God for being recognized. Otherwise, I mean, it's a weird thing actually in the culture that we live in at the moment. I think being a comedian is almost like it's, it's licensed to joke. It's like you're allowed to say things that regular people now would sort of think twice about, but somehow just being labeled a comedian, you're allowed to kind of, uh, you know, say things that are slightly transgressive. And I mean, I I think comedy lives in the space between um, public and private discourse, and it's never been wider than it is right now. You know, if you watch the TV news, whether you're on the left or on the right, it doesn't really reflect the conversations that I'm hearing in the real world. Um, so you know, people are much more questioning and much more kind of apt to to sort of you know say, well, what's going on with that? I think they they want a, um, uh, I think people want a debate, and it strikes me that the sort of political classes and the the people that are very engaged are in their entrenched and in their echo chambers and their amplifiers even more so than echo chambers. And regular people are kind of going, well, hang on, can we hear from both sides? Can we can we not can we not talk about this? And again, talking about things it's like. Humor is a great way to process stuff. You know, we talk about things that are kind of on the edge. And I, I, I sort of think it's, um, I think my my comedy's edgy, not offensive. And the thing that right. I make is that it's uh, progressive. I'm interested in ideas. I don't hate anyone. It's, it's fun and it's pushing things kind of forward rather than reactionary and saying, I want things to stay the same. You know, I don't have any, I've got no illusions about the past being Some green and pleasant land. I think it's like everything's getting better, but it's happening very slowly. And I think you can kind of joke. Here's the the great quote you can joke about anything, but not with anyone.
1: Yeah, that's the thing I find fascinating about comedians and stand ups like yourself is that you all say the things that a lot of us are thinking, and quote unquote cancel culture that wants to stamp out art, which is purely subjective. I think is frustrating for me because what you're doing is you're providing an opportunity for people and other comedians to really say the things that we want to say and make it funny. Just like this book, you know, there's lots of humor throughout this. A lot of the stories that you share and that sort of thing. And it sounds like you said, the response has been fantastic with the book. Yeah. I know you've been doing a, a virtual book tour tour. We'll be starting one soon with it. Yeah.
0: Uh, well, It's, it's interesting that thing, isn't it? The, um, you know, cancel culture is obviously, it's a very interesting thing to talk about. But really, you know, it's it's um, it's, it, you know, everyone's got their, you know, the great thing about Twitter, the great thing about social media. I think people always had artists that they liked, didn't like, approved of, didn't approve of, didn't want to hear that kind of comedy, but they didn't have a voice. And now everyone's got a voice. And that has to be a good thing.
1: The, yes. the problem is
0: that if everyone has a voice, obviously there will be people that don't like it. And how many people does it take before it's a Twitter storm? I'd say 20 is more than enough to cause a Twitter storm and a story in the wider media and a question about should the corporation that's paid for your special, you know, be allowed to exist anymore. It seems that it's it's like we're, we're, we're trying to find our way in a, in a new world. And it's 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 good that people have, you know, opinions. Like, it's like, I'm not right about stuff just because I'm an edgy comic. And people that are offended by it have the right to be offended and the right to say, I don't want to watch that. But the idea of saying, I don't want anyone to be able to watch that. It seems crazy to me. It's like if you if you take the 1970s cancel culture kind of thing, which cancel culture used to come from the right. But it, it now comes from the left. It's a very interesting switch that's happened in our society over a 30 year period. All um, uh, sort of uh, banning ban this filth kind of, um, uh, you know, we, we must we must take, you know, uh, adult lyrics or, you know, not suitable for children or R ratings came from the right. And now it all comes from the left. It's a very interesting, you know, look at cancel culture. I think it's the new book burning. And yeah. I think anyone that's, you know, because you're you're wiping someone out, you're basically saying, well, I don't want them to be able to exist anymore. You're sort of burning the book metaphorically. And I don't think anyone that burned the Beatles records in the 60s feels great about it now. <laughs> I don't, I mean, maybe there are, maybe there are people that go, you know what, I stand by it you know, fuck those guys. But I think most people go, Oh yeah, we kind of, we didn't really, we didn't really react to that. We didn't have a debate.
1: Yeah. It's like, it was something that happened in the moment, but really like at the end of the day now, it's kind of like, why did we do this? You know, like what was the point behind it other than maybe perhaps just trying to create uh, something. And that's the thing about this book is, and you call yourself edgy, which I find interesting because even in the realm of comedy, you know, I can think of five or six comedians off the top of my head that would consider themselves to be edgy too. But I think comedy, just as a whole, you have, as you said, a license to talk about things that maybe I might not have the platform to well, do. Well,
0: you know, comedy is a is a long tradition, right? So before yeah. there were stand up comedians, there was music hall performers in A thing called variety, where you lots of different flavors in variety, you know, it's part of the thing is there has to be lots of different types of people doing this, lots of different types of acts. And then before that, there were court jesters, and before that, there were uh trickster gods like uh, Anansi and the Monkey King, and you know, where there's always been someone sort of that can tease and uh that is uh you know a trickster and it, it, you know is playing around and messing, and that's very important for human culture that we don't get to uptight
1: and po-faced. Yeah, 100%. I I think that's very right. And the other thing that you mentioned is the fact that uh, making a conscious choice as a comedian when you're writing jokes to say, you know, to just alienate somebody altogether. When you are writing your material outside of the book...
0: Just rewind on that. So making a conscious choice to alienate... Well,
1: you said something about... You said something to the effect of making it to where nobody wants to listen or something to that effect. Um, when you're writing jokes, you, you're you writing with the general mass in mind for the, hopefully for people to respond to what you're saying, whether they agree. Here's,
0: or here's the thing. Um, I, I think I'm picking up on the point here. So let me get this right. So my writing process is I kind of write for me. I write stuff. Okay. That I funny. That's the first thing. That's the first hurdle. It has to jump. Right. So it's almost like Walt Disney had three rooms in his house probably four, he probably had one for anti-Semitism as well, but he basically had three roots. And the first one was for creativity. So that's kind of writing the joke, the initial idea, you know, never refuse the muse is my go-to, right? Because it rhymes, it must be true. So if you think of something, oh wow, that could be, a, that's a funny phrase at 3 a.m. If you're a co- comedian and you don't write that down, I have news, you're not a fucking comedian. <laughs> you, you're just, you're, you're an amateur. Okay, but you have to write that down. If you, you make a list of everything that you think might be, there's something in that. And then there's a managerial room where you take that stuff that you kind of was just the the bare thought thing in a conversation. You thought, oh, that could be something. And then you try and hone that and make it as good as possible. And then only in the third room have you got a critic and the critic critiques what you've done. Is that good? Is that bad? Now, I've outsourced my critic. I think most comics do. My critic is the audience and the audience is a genius. Lenny Bruce said it first. The audience have had no training. They've, they've given no thought to comedy and they can tell me with 100% accuracy whether something is offensive or not and whether it's funny or not. And, you know, if something's offensive, if something just gets a big reaction, that ain't a joke. I could say terrible things on stage and get a big, ooh, it has to get a laugh first and then maybe an ooh, That that lovely sense of cognitive dissonance. You know that thing where you have like two thoughts at the same time? Kind of the measure of intelligence, the idea that you can go, well, I'm laughing at that because it's very funny. But there's another bit of my me that always comes in slower because it's the, the the sort of formal uh, nurture part that goes. Oh, should I laugh at that though? It's naughty. Yeah. And that's a lovely that's a lovely kind of space to work in. As far as alienating people, I mean, listen, I'm I'm a an entertainer, and you want to entertain as many people as possible. It's it's interesting that thing that happens where people get offended by one joke. But the format of what I do, though, you know, is is very much one liner. They're clearly jokes, feed line, punchline, laugh. So no one really gets confused with that and an opinion. I mean, you could do if you wanted to, if you had an axe to grind or if you're a journalist that thinks, well, I need to write a story. I'll watch one of these DVDs and find something you can. Of course, you could find something. But no one's really the audience. Audiences are smart. They really are and they, they get oh that's a joke He means that he doesn't mean that it's, they they get they get the nuance of humor i think comedians leak i think that you can watch someone's hour long special and they haven't said a fucking thing about themselves and you have a sense of who they are
1: oh 100% i you can pick up on that really well i know we have a time restraint on this but i want to talk about the other side of that when you're writing jokes
0: all day long this is talking about comedy for me it's like I mean, listen. I don't know whether the your listeners are getting anything out of this, but this kind of inside baseball chat about comedy is. I live for this, and I love that podcasts have brought this to people. This kind of it's yeah. long form, it's conversive, it's a it's a conversation about stuff. It's really it's it's interesting, and I feel like the reason they've done it is because it's missing from the rest of our culture.
1: Yeah, one hundred percent. That's why I have so many comedians on because of the fact. It's an opportunity outside of going to watch it somewhere to talk to you and really get deep into your process and the psyche behind it. So when you're writing jokes for like, let's say the roasts, is your approach the same for writing roast jokes versus like something that you might do for a special or something along those lines? Or are they completely different?
0: No, it's 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 a very similar thing. You're going to the same well and you're sort okay. of staying within those constraints. I think the important thing with roast jokes is it's not about the person you're writing about. That's the thing. Yeah. If you try and write a joke about someone, it's kind of, it's very, it's overly specific. And really what we, I I believe in social justice. I believe this is a Neil Brennan quote, one of my favorite comics of all time, but I believe in social justice and stereotypes. So (laughs) you you write to the stereotype, you write to the kind of stereotype and then you go, well, you know, that's, it becomes like a, so if I'm writing a joke about, um, Uh, I'm I'm trying to think of her name on the last roast. The uh, the right wing commentator Ann Coulter. Yes. Joke about Ann Coulter. It's. I mean, she can take it as personally as she wants, but really, that joke is about okay. So that's a right wing Trump supporting commentator. What are the, What's the thing that's going to pop there? What's the? And then you're you're kind of looking for the outlandish, the worst thing you could say in that scenario. Um, for roast jokes, the 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 sort of there's a there's a. There's, there's different points awarded, it feels like, with Rose jokes for like, uh, for bravery. Like how far are you willing to take this? I actually gigged with, um, Jeff Ross was in London with Dave Chappelle a couple of weeks ago. And we, we did a session together where we got like, you know, that great thing he does on tour. Have
1: you seen Jeff on tour? Oh, yeah. He is the best. So I, different than most, but I, I love it. He's fantastic.
0: It's a great format, I think, him live. Because it feels like the thing Jeff does is he hosts a party and you're all invited. Yeah. And we're all on the same level and we joke about everyone. And I like that thing about like, you know, the my only issue with offense is when it's on behalf of someone else. If someone is offended, if someone says, hey, listen, you made a joke about this and I'm in a wheelchair and I actually found that a, a difficult, you know, a challenging joke. I didn't like it. I'll listen to that all day long. Someone's saying I'm I'm offended on behalf of my, uh, okay. I think it's very inclusive to joke about someone because you're, you're sort of saying, When people say, are you punching down? I always think, well, well, hang on. Are you to be punching down? I'd have to be looking down. Wait, are you looking down on these people? You just like someone going, are you punching down on disability? Go, no. Who? What? So you're looking down on those people. Are you? Fuck you, man.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I, I, have been wanting to ask that question for a while with other comics and I just haven't gotten to it. So it's interesting so, you're writing about the situation or some, but not them specifically. I it's think not so. like.
0: Well, you're trying to see the broad things of that. You're, you're obviously with roast jokes. I mean, this is very specific to roast jokes, but you're going, what do people recognize here? It's okay. no use finding out a detail about you and going, oh, you know, his mother had, you know, uh, grew up in Oklahoma. Oh, okay, well, I'll do an Oklahoma gag. Oh, what? No, the audience don't have that information. What can we see? You know, people there's often that thing about you know if you're a comic you've got two minutes to impress the audience that's (laughs) that you're living in a fucking dream world you've got until you walk to the mic they've already made up their mind you know people are people are so smart most of communication is non-verbal whether that's you know tonal or body language or whatever you know so they've made up their mind it's like that it's the confidence thing is kind of is everything
1: yeah, when you come out on stage, we know what we're getting, what to expect, and also the other thing that I want to talk about is your crowd work, which I like. I was watching something that you had done recently, and it, I don't know how old the special was, but there was like some your mama jokes in there that you did that was just super brilliant.
0: I love, I love that. I, th- I think also the thing about the the your mama thing, which is, I mean, it's it's not as cliched in the UK as it is there, but it really <laughs> it really anchors me in childhood. There's something about a Your Mum So Fat joke that makes me remember being 15 and 16 at school and teasing your friends. And the first time, like, I don't care how good the comic is, I'll put put Chris Rock and uh, Richard Pryor and Louis C.K. and fucking George Carlin up against you and your friends and they will lose every time. Because the funniest jokes you've ever heard, the most you've ever fucking laughed, is with your friends it, a little in-joke. And so I think sometimes the heckle stuff speaks to that, right? Because it's it's like, it's a you're taking the mick out of someone in the audience. You're, you're taking the person, and it's a, there's a warmth to that that is, obviously, if you're a piece of AI equipment and all you can do is see the words being exchanged, you would think violent altercation. But that's what all jokes are, right? All jokes are, it's remote tickling. When you think about what tickling is, right? Tickling is like a violent act but it's made um, benign by the act of the act of laughter. It's, it's, yes. it's okay. It's, you're saying this is not a threat. And when someone you make a joke about someone and they laugh, they're showing status. They're demonstrating their status within the group. They're going, yeah, I can fucking, I can take it. it it's, it's kind of, it's, it's a, it's a fascinating area. I, I made a documentary for the BBC um, uh, for Horizon uh, years ago about laughter, about how laughter is about a million years older than language it predates us even speaking. And it was the reason we were able to have bigger groups and, and specialize and become humans is because we were able to, we didn't have to groom literally. We had to, we could, we could just grunt or, or point And there was a shared, okay, I'm showing my teeth. It's okay. There's no threat.
1: Yeah. I like that uh, analogy of tickling. I think of my seven-year-old sometimes it could be perceived as aggressive on his end, but we make it fun and he goes, I get it. And the other thing about roasts or not roasts, but, uh, but, but crab-
0: just sorry, if you hold, just hold that point for one second, because I think it's a really important thing because it speaks to everything we're talking about today. Actually, uh, some kids don't like to be tickled. Yeah. They don't like that. Some kids love it. It's their best thing. They want to be tickled until ah, I can't take it anymore. And some kids hate that. And you and you have to respect that. You have to respect – well, you know, so there's – when I talk about my audience or the audience, there's no the audience. It's like the people that come and see me like that tickle. They like yes. that. Tickle. The other people, not
1: so much. If I go to an Anthony Jeselnik show, I'm going because I know what's going to happen. I'm Good hoping
0: – you're going because I was not playing in that city and, you know. You well, yeah.
1: Well, come to the Bay Area <laughs> and and I'm there, man. I mean, I so.
0: Anthony so much. I mean, it's that, it's that thing where you go, the thing about this kind of chat is I want to list for you, like, who are the people you love? Like, Anthony's amazing. I love Neil Brennan. His new Broadway show. I haven't seen the show. I've just heard the audio that he sent me, but it's unbelievable. So good. Um I love Jim Jefferies. There's so, there's so many great, you know who I love at the moment? Beth Stelling. She's amazing, a, like next level, just terrific. Um, Michelle Wolf. There seems to be like there's a, a a crop of just brilliant comics, just kind of around the place. It's so inspiring. It's like so great when you see good shows and you kind of go, oh my god, I've got to, I've got to work harder. I really have.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that there could be the position where it could be intimidating, perhaps maybe to some comedians who are. At a certain level versus another, but to be able to have that camaraderie—that's the other thing I admire about comedians. Well, is that there's not- an overall sense of no, camaraderie. Happened. You know, Alan Habey?
0: yes, he's incredible comedian and a dear friend of mine. He was in like Mad Men and stuff. He's, he's a tidy little actor, actually, Alan Habey. But he said this great thing to me years ago. He said, uh, we "We're eating chicken wings in the comedy cellar and drinking whiskey," and he went, "We're out, we're out for ourselves, but we're in it together." Yes. And I just thought, oh, that's, that's the whole fucking thing right there. Like no one is in competition. Even if you're doing something ostensibly similar to someone else, you go, well, there's plenty of room for all of us. And actually them doing better, it just makes the pie bigger. I want every comedy show to, I want every comedian to take the roof off because then people go, well, comedy, I'll go and see some comedy. Great.
1: Yeah. I think it's inspiring for everybody because it motivates to go out. One last well, question about the crowd work. Go ahead. The
0: thing though is that it's, it's that difference between envy and jealousy. Yes. You know, in show business, there's a lot of jealousy, which is, I don't want him to have that. You don't necessarily even want the show that he got given. You, you're not even an actor. You don't want that part of the film, but you don't want them to have it. That's very negative. And envy tells you what you want. Envy can be quite useful in life because it tells you what you want, and that's the most fundamental of questions. What do you want? So if someone gets a special or they're playing Carnegie Hall and you go, I want to do that. You go, well, okay, great. You go after that then. You, you know what you want now. Go after it. I always think like if someone does well in comedy and their success is not my success, that isn't a friend, that's a frenemy. And you and you need to kind of deal with that because otherwise I think this business kind of rips you up because it's it's so kind of, uh, you're so apt to become jealous of other people's success.
1: Yeah, I, I could now- see that very much so. So kind of circling back to the book here, you were in corporate America and doing these types of things. Where was the moment where you knew that comedy and this sort of thing was something that you wanted to sort of pursue? I was about Uh, our listeners.
0: The whole book is kind of about this. I was about 25. I was working for Shell Oil, which at the time wasn't even the bad guys at the time. This was pre Greta Thunberg. We thought we were doing a fine job. Uh, I was working in marketing for them and I was very dissatisfied. I wasn't depressed, but I was sad and I felt like I wanted to do something else, anything else. I wanted a life less ordinary. So leaving to become a comedian wasn't about being like a internationally famous on TV, playing 40 countries, touring the world, All you know, all of the plaudits, Netflix specials, all of that stuff. It's not about any of that. It was yo-ho-ho, a pirate's life for me. I don't care about any of that stuff. I just want to pursue what I think I'm best at, what I think my gift is. And I think, you know, there's two great adventures in life. And the first one is finding your purpose, finding out what what's your edge, what's the thing you do better than anything else? Not better than anyone else, but b- b- better than anything else you do, right? You don't have to be the best in the world. You just have to be better than yourself last year, and then that's the first adventure. And the second one is pursuing that. You know, I've had a very privileged life that I got to do both.
1: I mean, but- that whole adage of I felt like that uh, was like signing
0: off. I felt like that's definitely I'm going to die, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we could end there. I think that's just super important. This is a great book. Again, um, the title is Before and Laughter, a life-changing book, again, a memoir to your son. And I think everybody should read this because it's just a great book, especially if you're a parent and really helping sort of navigate through your life and sort of understand some things. One last question, Jimmy, kind of out of all these things that you've done, whether it's in comedy or the specials or any of those things, best advice that you were ever given in the trajectory of your career that stuck with you and that sustained you throughout this entire journey uh, that you've been a part of.
0: Well, Okay. I mean the whole book, every self-help book is the same thing. Every self-help book say, says the same thing. And they sometimes they spend 500 pages saying it. I'll give you in two words, prioritize later. That's it. You know, hard choices now, easy life later. That's it. That's the best writing now, Ah, oh, it's a pain writing a book. Oh my god, the ball like of writing a book. Having written a book, fucking amazing. Having written that joke and doing it on stage, wow. What I mean, what a thrill. But doing the work is sometimes a bit. So find something that you love doing. You'll never work again, and always prioritize later. You can be, you can be rich and you can be healthy, but you need to exercise and you need to save and you know all of these things. There is such a thing as a time machine, but it, you know time just moves at, at this speed in this direction but you're gonna meet yourself in the future. It's just not like Star Trek, you'll, you'll, you'll be there. And I think that thing of going, it's it's yeah, prioritize later.
1: I love it. Jimmy, thank you for joining me today on the podcast. I appreciate it.
0: It's, it's an absolute pleasure. I suppose that, the last question, the other thing that I didn't say there was, there's two myths in our society, certainly when it comes to comedy. And one of the myths is genius. That guy's a genius. He's such a genius. He just, it's easy for him because he's a genius. And the other myth is he worked so hard. Oh my God, he worked so hard. Of course it happened for him, he worked so hard. It's always bullshit. It's always a mix of the two. What you're best, find out what you're best at, work very hard at that, add time, that's your luck. You're buying lottery tickets. And every time you work harder at what you're best at and get more specialist in it, you know, you get luckier. Uh, Be lucky, my friend, Uh, we should do this again. That was an absolute pleasure talking to you. I really enjoyed that.